If I've not had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors. And if you're just joining us this morning, we are, as a church, halfway through a sermon series in the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel tells the story of four Israelite teenagers who, among roughly 5,000 others, are torn from their families and homes and they are deported to a far away country where they face an array of danger. And as they face a pagan king, and actually a series of pagan kings, last Sunday in Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 27, we considered a second unsettling dream that came to Nebuchadnezzar in the middle of the night. A dream of a gigantic, strong tree that attracted and united and nourished every living creature on earth. It was a tree of such figurative power and promise that it would seemingly last forever. But in the dream, an angel of the Most High God descended from heaven and issued a a decree that the tree should be chopped down and reduced to a stump in the ground, emptied of its glory, but not completely destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was understandably alarmed at this dream and he was disturbed at its meaning which was revealed by his chief wise men Daniel according to Daniel remember last week with me Nebuchadnezzar's well according to Daniel the tree symbolized Nebuchadnezzar and his earthly renown and it was at this time in the story it's at this time in the story that Nebuchadnezzar's empire had grown so high and so far and so wide He arrogantly believed himself to be unlimited and immovable and capable of doing whatever he pleased. But there is only one in all of heaven and earth who possesses these qualities. The most high creator God whose dominion and kingdom and wisdom and honor endure from everlasting to everlasting. Even the most powerful of human rulers are subordinate to God's sovereign plan. In last week's passage, Daniel made clear to Nebuchadnezzar that like the tree in his dream, the most high God would bring him down to near total destruction. And he will not be reinstated to his earthly rule until he and All living peoples see that the Most High God is ruler above all rulers, and he does as he pleases among men. Our passage last Sunday ended at chapter 4, verse 27, with Daniel urging Nebuchadnezzar, Therefore, O king, let this counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. By practicing righteousness and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Let's now pick up the story. I'll read starting at verse 28 of Daniel chapter 4 and we'll go through verse 37. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, 
And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me now i nebuchadnezzar praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, most high in heaven, you are in the business of humbling people who wouldn't otherwise bow in humility. By your grace, by your Holy Spirit, making our hearts new, we come together and we bow before you in your most holy word and would ask that you would keep up that miracle in us, that you would make us to be humble this morning, that we might hear with ears that hear and eyes that see and hearts that receive the word of truth that we've just read, that we would be conformed to it for your glory and that we would be conformed to it for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
A pastor of a church was once asked by a room of curious visitors, what's the reason for the growth of your church? Your church is really impressive. What's the reason? The pastor's wife answered, my husband is an amazing teacher. That's why the church has grown as it has. Never mind that it was God who had given that pastor faith and repentance and the gift of teaching in the first place. Never mind that it was God who had placed him in that particular town and surrounded him with supportive co-laborers. Never mind that it was God who had drawn people from all over the county to listen to and respond to the preaching of the word. Never mind that it was God who had used the pastor's God-given gifts to build the church that he promises to build in Scripture. Never mind that the Apostle Paul makes crystal clear in Philippians 2.13 that even in our working, it is God who is at work for his own glory and good pleasure. Whether we admit it or not, whether we mean to or not, we're all inclined to think and speak and act like little Nebuchadnezzars, aren't we? We're all inclined to take credit for the strengths and abilities and positions and resources and successes that we enjoy and seldom, except in rare moments of sanity do we recognize how absurdly prideful we are. We've all got something to learn from Nebuchadnezzar's experience in this passage. In Luke 14, 11, much later in the biblical story, Jesus issues a blanket promise that we see play out time and time again in scripture and we're seeing playing out right now in the scripture we're about to dive into. And the, the blanket promise that Jesus issues is this, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who are humbled will be exalted. And so for the remainder of our time, I'd like to use those very words as the headings for our outline for this passage. So number one, we'll look at those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And number two, we'll look at those who are humbled will be exalted. I'm using scripture, I suppose, to outline another passage of scripture. I don't know. Maybe this is going to get confusing. Hopefully not. Number one, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Truer words were never spoken. Back in verse 27, Daniel urged Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself before God before it was too late. And yet as we come into our passage at the beginning, in verses 28 through 33, we see that a whole year has passed and Nebuchadnezzar is carrying on as usual. He clearly did not take to heart what Daniel had pleaded. Nebuchadnezzar has had a whole year to recall what he'd been shown of God through Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
He's had a whole year to reflect on and respond to God's power. But instead, he's walking around on the rooftop of one of his three enormous palaces. And he's looking out over the indestructible city of Babylon, surrounded by a moat, surrounded by an impenetrable double wall system that was 40 feet high and 75 feet thick. He's looking out over the magnificent procession street, 62 feet wide and a thousand yards long paved with precious stone that led up to the hanging gardens, which would become one of seven wonders of the ancient world. He's looking out over all of this and more. And what does he do in verse 30? He exalts himself. Is this not the great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Probably none of us would dare to speak such a thing out loud, but we just might dare to think it quietly when it comes to looking out over our companies, our jobs, our homes, our successes. Think about everything that had to take place in order for Nebuchadnezzar to be standing where he is. Think about what had to take place. How much of this do you think was his doing? He was born at just the right time and place to the royal family of Babylon. He was educated his whole life by the best tutors money could buy. He inherited nearly unlimited resources and an entire staff of people at his beck and call. And what about his cognitive skills, his character traits? Did his intellect and his drivenness and his decision-making ability and creativity originate within him? When it comes to Nebuchadnezzar's being and having, how much of it is he really responsible for? None. None of it. Please see with me how ridiculous it is that Nebuchadnezzar is patting himself on the back for anything. And so it is, brothers and sisters, with you and me. You know where this is headed. Yours and my family of origin. Yours and my education. Yours and my cognitive skills. Yours and my talents and abilities. Yours and my jobs, yours and my achievements and successes. The Apostle Paul, nope, the Apostle James writes in James chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, this. All we are and all we have has been given to us from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
Do you and I get this? Do we feel this? Do we meditate on this to the degree that it informs the way we speak and think and act? Out of the heart the mouth speaks. Out of the heart the mouth says, to what do we owe the tremendous growth and success of this church? My husband. The kind of humility God is calling us to is not a false humility. False humility is where we pretend that we don't have the cognitive skill and talent and abilities and jobs and successes that we do. Or we go, oh, I'm just a worthless worm. And we don't mean it. Because we're not a worthless worm. This is false humility. The kind of humility God is calling us to is one that acknowledges and reflects his generous hand that has and is and will be at work in all that we are and all that we have and all that we will do if he wills. And every human being in the world will find this out one way or another. Every human being in the world, believer or not, there will be a day at the resounding of the trump when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the most high Lord. But some will do it on their way to judgment forever and some will do it on their way to eternal life. Nebuchadnezzar finds it out in this life the hard way in verse 30. Well, actually, it's the verse after, but in verse 30, he's like this. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for my glory and majesty? And while the words were still in his mouth, that is, in mid-sentence, without word or warning, I mean, he'd been warned a year ago and every day in between. But in mid-sentence, the most high God detonates the controlled demolition of Nebuchadnezzar's life. If Nebuchadnezzar will not humble himself under the mighty hand of God, God will do it for him. There is a severity to mercy sometimes. But it's mercy Nonetheless, God most high will humble Nebuchadnezzar under his mighty hand by removing Nebuchadnezzar from his throne and from his palace and from his impenetrable city and he'll drive him out into the middle of the field where he will think and act and look and eat like an animal. Those who exalt themselves while basking in their accomplishments, whether in front of a room of curious church visitors or in the quiet arrogance of our own self-reliant thinking, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And point number two, those who are humbled will 
be exalted. Between verse 33 and verse 34, seven periods of time pass by. We discussed this a little bit last week, and I won't harp on it long. Those seven periods of time could have been seven literal years. It could have also been seven symbolic years until Nebuchadnezzar's humility was brought to its full completion. The number seven throughout the Old Testament means fullness and completion. Either way, whether seven symbolic years or seven literal years, Nebuchadnezzar is brought low like an immovable tree that's been fell to the stump. But we need to see how all of it is laden with the mysterious mercy of God. In verse 34, after everything that had aided in Nebuchadnezzar's toxic pride had been reduced to rubble, after he had been left with nothing, he then lifted his eyes to heaven. To heaven is where people look when they have nowhere else to look. One of the most common testimonies from all of those who were at the World Trade Center on the ground level during the attacks, one of the most common testimonies is what could be heard. Not only was the building, but people crying out to the God of heaven. They were turning to heaven because they had nowhere else to go. There was something deeply wired into every human being and it comes out when we are faced with the end. Tim Keller puts it this way. You don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven and his reason returned to him. In an instant, he no longer thought like a beast of the field. He thought as he had been created to think. He became reasonable again. And look at the result of his reasonableness. He blesses the Most High God. He praises and honors the Eternal One from whom all blessings flow. It's astounding to me that a return to mere sanity is the result of and fruit of and leading to even further conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar. Make no bones about it. This man is being spiritually converted into a child of God. Has been. Right here. Like to the degree I, I am confident I am going to see and brush shoulders with King Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom that is to come. I, I, I mean he has gone from a ruthlessly hard-hearted pagan narcissist to a soft-hearted servant worshiper of the king of heaven. 
And his song of praise in verses 34 and 35, this song of praise is actually the full version of the song that was previewed to us back in verse 3. Remember how verse 3 and verses 34 and 35 serve as bookends to this chapter? Listen to what he sings on paper. God's dominion is an everlasting dominion, not mine. God's kingdom endures forever, My, not mine. All the inhabitants of the earth, including me, are nothing when compared to him. Among the host of heaven, God does as he deems right. Among all the peoples of earth, God does as he deems right. And no one can stop him. And no one can slap him on the hand like a mother who corrects her child. What did you just do? In 36, after Nebuchadnezzar's mind is restored to him, his rule and dominion and royal splendor is also restored to him. It's not a whole, un, not a, not a whole, not a whole unlike, okay, I'll just pick different words. He's not unlike Job. Sweet mercy. And sometimes the Lord does this where he brings back and gives back all and more in this way. Sometimes he doesn't. But God is in the business, nevertheless, of raising up those whom he brings low. He's in the business of exalting those whom he humbles. And then in 37, in Nebuchadnezzar's last appearance in the book of Daniel, he concludes his song of praise with a phrase that had come to him at a dreadfully wonderful cost. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right. Catch this, even his bringing my low, even his emptying me, all of his works are right and all of his ways are just. He's just in doing what he does. And those who walk in pride, gosh, Nebuchadnezzar knew this firsthand, he is able to humble. To look at the King Nebuchadnezzar of chapters one through three, and then to look at the King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter four is to look at two different men. And what happened in between was God forcing him to his knees by removing from underneath him everything that had been propping him up. Theologian Ian Dugwood comments, as long as we are comfortable and at ease in this world, we are not normally ready to really examine our hearts and to institute deep change. It is for that reason that discomfort and difficulty 
and disaster are often the necessary precursors of spiritual growth. It is precisely through the storms of life, through danger and darkness, that God will show us who we really are and even more importantly, who he really is. So brothers and sisters, what undesirable challenges are you being faced with right now? What frustrating inconveniences, what frightening uncertainties, what painful situations are you being faced with right now? Ian Dugwood continues, See, it's often when our career hopes are dashed. It's often when our marriage relationship is faltering. It's often when the doctor gives us dreadful news. It's in difficulties such as this. And difficulties such as this should prompt within us this otherworldly hope and expectation that God is up to something important in our lives. The fact is, is that I am a lot more like Nebuchadnezzar than I want to acknowledge on my best day. We all are. The thing is, is that we are all like Nebuchadnezzar Though we don't have crowns on our heads, we are often exploiting and taking advantage of every advantage we have to try and accumulate for us a name, an impenetrable for fortress of security, stability. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to have doubt or have anything lingering out there that can, that can make us topple. And yet, much later in the biblical story, we read of an entirely different king who had complete and utter equality with God since and before the foundations of the world. And he came to this earth and he did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, Paul writes in Philippians 2. But instead, he emptied himself and became a servant. And he entrusted himself to the Father, even to the point of death and death on a cross. He who is the most glorious of all beings became willingly the most inglorious of all beings, taking to the cross, my penchant, my thirst, my intoxication for power and recognition and security and stability and fame and everything arrogant, he took to the cross that I deserved, having complete and utter, wonderful, glory, glorious equality with God he went to the cross that I deserve for thinking I deserve all of those things. 
and he died the death I deserve and he rose to life. This Jesus, who very clearly tells us that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who are humbled will be exalted, he knows the end of the story for after his resurrection and his ascension back to the throne, the, the Father has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the name to whom and toward whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He is Lord. He's worthy of our trust. So may we, while we are given time, ask, as the name of this sermon goes, Ask God to restore into us the right spirit, right reason that we would see that he and he alone is all and in all. He alone is worthy. While we have time, may we ask this for ourselves. May we ask this for our nation's elected officials. And it isn't ironic at all, but provident, in fact, that we're approaching election day. What does this passage here tell us except for monarchical and even elected rulers, right? They are all lackeys in the hand of God's providence. So may it give us a bit of courage as we enter in. And may we pray for our elected officials. May we pray for our spouses, our fathers, mothers, children. May we pray for our elder pastors, deacons, leaders, our bosses, coworkers, neighbors, and family members. What if the prayer was simply this, Lord, return them and restore them to right reason because when we are rightly thinking, we acknowledge him as the glorious most high God. Let's make that our prayer. And let's pray together now in Jesus. Most high God, no one can coerce or manipulate your hand. And no one can slap your hand as though you have ever made a mistaken judgment. You who alone are able to do this, we pray that you would humble us that you would humble the proud, that you would humble President Biden, that you would humble our elected officials here in Worcester, that you would humble our spouses, that you would humble our parents and our children and the leaders of this church and bosses and coworkers and neighbors. Would you humble us? And when we are low, Lord, may you bring us up to our feet in Jesus' name. Restored, healed, and made alive in his sacrificial blood and his most powerful resurrection. Humble us that we might honor you by doing and hearing, by hearing and doing this word that we've just spent time in today, and humble us to now declare your praise in song. In Jesus' name we pray this, amen.